minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Monday Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program.
Monday morning as we head back to a work on this uh, July Monday, and I hope everybody had uh, whatever time off you did enjoy over the uh, 4th of July. I hope you uh, did, in fact, enjoy it. Uh, today we are uh, starting the nine days. Today is Rosh Chodesh Av. Today is the first of the nine days, concluding with Tisha B'Av, where we have certain customs, and one of the customs that we've established here over the years is that we go into a complete uh, talk format, essentially a complete talk format, uh, a format dominated by talk, um, during the nine days. And uh, that will conclude uh, Tuesday with Tisha B'Av, Tuesday of next week. Wednesday of next week, the 10th of Av, we will play uh, for you stories of Reb Shlomo Kalbach, which has become a tradition over the years. And uh, then on the... Um, 11th of Av, a week from Thursday, we'll be back to our regular programming here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine has been the centerpiece of our nine days programming for many, many years, and this year is no exception. The first lecture that we'll be listening uh, to this this season is from the series Rabbi Beryl Wine on Jewish values. And we open up a Monday morning with Rabbi Wine's lecture on pleasantness at JM in the AM. This series concerns itself with, uh, what shall I say, the fifth section of the Shulchan Aruch. In back of the Shulchan Aruch uh, is God. And that's the ultimate uh, goal. And uh, the values of Judaism are uh, primary in influencing uh, the other four sections of the Shulchan Aruch. And it's primary in assessing what a Jew should be. Now, we have very high standards. And even if we don't reach those standards, at least we have an idea of what we are striving for. And the Torah does not compromise its values. Uh, the Torah is not, the Torah is willing to forgive people, but it's not willing to forgive values. By that I mean we're not allowed to change the value simply because I can't do it, or I didn't do it, or because it's hard. So for that we have a Yom Kippur. For that we have Tshuva. Uh, for that we have all sorts of mechanisms that even if the person is not perfect, Uh, we can somehow raise him to some level of perfection. But the Torah never compromises its values. 
The Torah never says, well, since you can't do it, it's alright if you don't do it. And the Torah does not mark on a curve. The Torah does not say, you know, everybody does it, so we'll give you an A. And by the Torah, 60 is a 60, and an 80 is an 80, and 100 is a 100. And so therefore, I felt that uh, as a series, uh, we should uh, discuss and understand what these values are, their great importance, and how we see them reflected in the Torah itself. And many times we don't always see them reflected in Jews. Well, I've always said that one should never confuse Jews with Judaism. It's two different things. And we're talking here about Judaism, about Yahadus, about what the Torah represents. And we certainly should never confuse religion with rabbis. And uh, because of that, therefore... Uh, we have this uh, system of values. Tonight's value that I'm going to discuss, which is the opening one in this series, has to do with pleasantness, with being nice. A trait that uh, sometimes here in Israel people say, well, he's a friar, which is the ultimate insult in Israel. The ultimate insult is that you let the other guy cut in in front of you in the lane. The second ultimate insult <laughs> So uh, the value of pleasantness is based upon a posik in Tehillim that, and rather in Mishle uh, that we all know Drachea Darche Noam the Shalom the paths of the Torah are ways of pleasantness. And uh, so even though that's a verse that we all know and we recite it when the Torah is put back in the ark, uh, but uh, it's not meant to be merely a nice phrase. It is meant to apply to halacha and to how Jews behave. And I'm going to give you... Uh, Eight, nine, ten examples of it tonight. It's this is not certainly not a full discussion of the matter, but we'll see how this value of pleasantness applies uh, in the Torah and in the Torah's outlook on how we should behave. The Sephorno, Abeno Vadio Misforno, fifteenth century uh, Italian doctor and rabbi there was a period of time that a lot of the rabbis were doctors or a lot of the doctors were rabbis I don't know which how it worked and uh, so he uh, wrote a uh, very very famous commentary to Chumash Sworno is the name of his town but he's known as the Sworno uh, he immortalized this uh, rather small Italian town uh, by his parish. So he discusses the halachas of Kashrus, which uh, we read in Parsha Shmini, in Chumash Vayikra. 
So it says, asher tochelu. This is, uh, these are the creatures that you should eat, and these are the creatures that you should not eat. So he says, what difference does it make what we eat? Why should the Lord be interested, so to speak, in our diet? So he discards immediately as a doctor the idea of health, which is many times advanced as a reason for Kashras. Uh, whether or not it's because he felt that uh, this century's medicine is the next century's quackery, uh, medicine constantly changes, or whether he felt that uh, perhaps the kosher foods are not necessarily uh, healthy foods. Having just survived Pesach, all of us can testify to that. Right? You know, it's uh, good old Eastern European Jewish food was cholesterol heaven. Kosher, but not necessarily healthy. And therefore, he doesn't, he doesn't accept health as being the reason. But he says as follows. He says that because there is such a thing as drochea darche noam, there's a pleasantness in eating. So not every food should be eaten because the food itself is, so to speak, a violation of the pleasantness of life. And therefore he says, All of the crawling things, uh, the shellfish, etc. He says these things, it's not nice. It doesn't appeal to our aesthetics. The fact that in the world it made to certain groups of people doesn't change the fact that in God's system of aesthetics, this is not nice to eat. Therefore, he says, it says, V'yisem G'doshim, you shall be holy. What is the definition of holy? The definition of holy is to be a pleasant person. To be able to stay away from things that are unpleasant. And therefore, he says, in the Torah, it says, V'nitmeisem bom, you become unholy, you become defiled by eating these creatures. So the Gemara says, You become gross, you become boorish, you become unmannered, you become unpleasant by eating these things. In Yiddish you would say, You're stopped up. And therefore he says that the halachas of what to eat and what not to eat stem from this idea of pleasantness, stem from the ideas of Jochea Darche Noam. And he says the same thing is true in the halachas of Tara Samishpocha, of family purity, and the halachas of Zov and Nida and all and Yoledes, is all a question of pleasantness. Because in the ancient world it was a question of superstition. It was a question of, uh, of uh, somehow uh, disease. He says none of that applies. What applies here is this idea of pleasantness. And therefore, 
everything in life has to be done in a pleasant fashion. And therefore he says, that's why in the Torah, we, the Torah is worried about not only what we eat, but how we eat. The Torah, for instance, is against fast foods. The Torah is against eating standing. Uh, the Torah has all sorts of, what do they care what I'm standing? Uh, what the Gemara says that one of, in today's world, we have different tests uh, for making matches between uh, men and women. Important items like what color tablecloth is used and uh, other uh, major issues. But one of the things the Gomorrah asks is, does the person eat in the street? person that eats in the street, it's unpleasant. It's not manners. And Jocher Darche Noam requires that we eat with manners as well. The, the uh, din of Maimachronim is because of the fact they didn't have forks in the ancient world. Forks are an invention of the Middle Ages. And so people ate with their hands, with their fingers, so you had to wash off your fingers before uh, uh, before uh, being able to uh, say Birch uh, And other things simply have to do with a pleasant way of life, a pleasant demeanor, an attitude of pleasantness in the world. And therefore he takes the laws of kashras, which we would say has nothing to do with this, and he inserts it under this value, that what we eat and how we eat, the way we eat, and the Gemara says, you know, you're supposed to limit conversation while you're eating, because ain't masichim besuda. The Gemara has all sorts of, who asked them? The Gemara is not Emily Post, it's not an etiquette book. And the answer is because it all comes under this rubric, it all comes under this title of pleasantness. And there's a pleasant way to eat. And the Torah describes it for us. And uh, this uh, is further enhanced by the fact that the Gemara teaches us, and it became one of the principles of the Bali Musr, and Bishoel Salanter uh, wrote, a person is created by his actions, by what he does. We think of it in the opposite. You know, the person is this and this type of person, therefore he does this and this and this. And we saw Salanter turn that on its head. He said, if you will do these and these actions, then you'll become this and this type of person. And therefore, if you will be pleasant, then you, if you do pleasant things, you will somehow become a pleasant person, even if you start out being an unpleasant person. Because a person is fashioned according to the behavior, according to what he does. So we'll see the Sefurno continues and says a remarkable insight. Shemi asher midosov mekulkolos umetumtomos. You have a person that he has bad character, 
bad behavior, he's an unpleasant person, and he's a completely observant Jew. It's what the Ramban calls a novel Bershusa Torah. Because without the values, without the fifth section of the Shulchan Aruch, the first four are not going to do it. So he says, Balkorcho Yagia Lemaskonos Madoyos. He said, People will then come because their behavior, their attitude, their manners are bad. So after a while, they will substitute their behavior and their understanding of right and wrong for the absolute understanding that the Lord and the Torah gave us. And they'll come out lonachonos. They will do things that are wrong. The Gemara says the Jews never believed in Avodah they never believed in paganism. Jews never believed that this idol can do anything for me. So then why do they worship idols during the entire time of the first temple? For hundreds of years. Because idolatry allowed them to be sexually immoral. And that's what they wanted. But you couldn't get up and say, I want to be sexually immoral. So you got up after a while because you were sexually immoral. You got up and I said, well, I'm pagan. And in paganism it's allowed. And if we'll substitute other things today, uh, you'll hear it very clearly, right? I'm allowed. Because I'm doing it. So when I create a philosophy to justify my behavior. And therefore, he says, you see how important the Rabboni Shalom felt, Kaviyochel, in this idea of Jocheo Darche Noam, in the first chapter embraces, God says, Nase Odom Betsalmeinu Chidmuseinu. Now the word Nase implies that he was talking to someone. It also implies that he was asking permission from someone. It also implies that someone helped him create human beings. Nase, let us together make. Now all of that is nonsense. Because God uh, uh, has no partners. So then why does it say Nase? So Rashi already comments that the Torah is teaching us here ways of pleasantness. That even the greatest of people, even the chief justice... Even the president, even the prime minister, should not take unilateral action without consulting with others. And that in order to put that lesson across, that if you want to have a pleasant society, you cannot act unilaterally. You cannot do on important issues what I want to do. But you have to speak to others and see what they say as well. So the Torah risked the fact that there will come people and say, well, look in the Bible, in the Bible it says, let us make man. So it must be that there is something else besides God. And in Christology, uh, that is used, right, as part of the Trinity, the us. So the Sephorno says, so then why did God do that? 
Why did God risk to put the word Nase uh, when evidently it is a word that can cause great problems? So he says, Shehechlit HaKadosh Baruch Hu Lehistakein Betos God was willing to take the risk that philosophically people will make a mistake and they'll say that there's more than one God in heaven because he wanted to teach us as Torah the necessity for modesty the necessity for humility the necessity to consult with others, the necessity not to say, I'm the only one that knows what's right. I'm the only one that can do it. It's me. And God wanted that lesson, that value, that value of the fact that others have to somehow also be consulted, that's so important that God risked the word Naseh, because the gain from understanding that Rabboni Shalom himself, Kaviocho, is willing to consult, that lesson is a greater gain than the risk of the loss that people will think that there's more than one God in the world. And therefore he says, Ki besofo shaldovar, the bottom line is, Hashkofos holchos achar hamidos. Behavior governs. And if you have good behavior, so then lochein im yilmedu midos tovos, memele yagiu lidei muskolos nechonos. Then you will have correct attitudes and correct hashkofos as well, because your behavior will shape how you look at the world and how you look at others. I remember when I was in the yeshiva in Chicago uh, a few days ago. Uh, it really feels like a few days ago, you know, when you get to my age, so then all of a sudden you start remembering. You start forgetting also, but you start remembering. So in the yeshiva, I went to the yeshiva in a time when none of us had any money. No, we had an allowance, uh, a dollar a week maybe. And you had to give Zdoka from it, and you paid your car fare from it, and you bought the candy bar from it, and that was it. Because my parents had no more, and there were boys and my friends that didn't even have the dollar. So every day in the yeshiva in Davning, they, were, they, they would pass around the pushka, the Zdoka box. And the Zdoka box, you'd put in a penny, two pennies, because you only had a dollar. I mean, how much could you afford? And the Zoka box always made noise. So, uh, you know, you're never as uh, clever and astute as when you're 15 years old. Because from then on, it's downhill all the way. <laughs> but when you're 15, you understand it all. You got, you, you got it all very clear. So I remember I went over to the Mashgiach, the Rabbi Wernick, Zechot Levrocha. And I said, Rebbe, you know, they pass around the pushke, 
and the, everybody puts in a penny. I mean, the end of the week, you got three dollars from the whole yeshiva, and it makes noise, and it's in the middle of Chazor Sashats, and it's not nice. And uh... so he says to me, he said, "Well, he said, you know why we pass around the pushka? Because we're training you to give zdoka every day, to put your hand in your pocket, and every day." He said, today you can only give a penny. He said, there'll come a day you'll be able to give a dollar. There'll be a day that you'll be able to give a hundred dollars. But if your hand is not trained, if it's atrophied, if Chasvisholim, you know, the person is paralyzed, he can't, he never put his hand in his pocket. So even when he has it, even when he wants to, he can't do it. I remember I once went with the Ponovizhirov to see a Jew who was notorious for being a miser. And I said, Rebbe, we're wasting our time. And he said, no, 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 we're going to do him a favor. He said, we're going to rip the money out of him for the year. We're doing him the biggest favor. We're going to rip it out of him. And he did. I mean, it was a masterpiece. (laughs) You know, and it was a sizable check. The man couldn't sign the check. It took him ten minutes. He picked up the pen. He put it down. He picked it up. He started the sign. He stopped. He just couldn't do it. His hand didn't write. And that's after he committed and he said he was going to do it. And he knew he was going to do it. But because he never gave, so then you can't do it. So this idea, this Sephorno says, is drachea darche noam... If you live a life of pleasantness, so then you change yourself. And your attitudes change. Your behavior governs your attitude. But if first you want to become a pleasant person, and then you're going to do pleasant things, unlikely that it will ever happen. If you want to think through the entire... uh, uh, philosophy of charity and, philosophy and uh, philanthropic behavior, it's not likely that you're going to be a charitable person. A charitable person has to train oneself. I always remembered the words of the Mashgiach because of the fact that the truth of the matter is that you have to train people. We are uh, just like all of the other in the animal kingdom as far as that is concerned, that we can be trained. That really was the idea of the Musser movement, Rabbi Soa Salanter and the Musser movement. Is that he wanted people to have the values of Torah, and the only way to have the values of Torah was to train them to do things. And uh, the Musser movement was a great success in 19th and early 20th century Lithuania. It was destroyed in the Holocaust, it has never been rebuilt. It is one of the great victims of the Holocaust, of which there are many. Not only are people victims and families are victims, and the Jewish people are victims because of what was destroyed. Let's proceed to another idea in which we see Jochea Darche It says in the Torah, Kol Almono Vegir Lo Sa'anun. You shall not persecute afflict, take advantage of the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. So Rashi says, It's not restricted to the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. You can't do it to anybody. 
Why did the Torah mention specifically the widow, the orphan, and the stranger? Because they're pretty much defenseless. They're more vulnerable to people taking advantage of them. They don't have someone to defend them. And therefore the Torah puts special emphasis on the fact that you shall not oppress the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. That's Rashi's pshat. The Rambam has a different view completely. The Rambam in the Sefer HaMitzvos, he counts the 613 mitzvos. So uh, the Rambam generally says, I will only count the mitzvah, that's a category. Underneath that category, there can be many sub-things, things that come under that, that are mitzvahs, but that's not the 613. So for instance, the Rambam has Avodah Zorah, so then he counts, you know, all the types of Avodah Zorah, but they are not a separate mitzvah in the 613. They're all under the general category of Avodah Zorah. So the Rambam here, according if he would adopt Rashi's opinion... He would put down the fact that you're not allowed to take advantage and persecute another person. Period. And the other person includes everybody. The widow, the orphan, the stranger. The Rambam has individual mitzvahs. You're not allowed to persecute someone or take advantage of someone. That's a regular person. Odom Ragil. And then he says you're not allowed to take advantage of an almona. And then he says, another mitzvah, you're not allowed to take advantage of a yatom, of an orphan. And then he says, another mitzvah, you're not allowed to take advantage of the ger. So the Rambam's got four mitzvahs where Rashi had one. So then why did the Rambam have four? So the Rambam saw in the attitude and the behavior towards the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, he saw a different attitude than in the attitude towards an Odom Ragil. So therefore he says as follows, Bishum Noam, because the Torah is the Torah of pleasantness. And therefore, the halacha is, not only shall you not take advantage, that's not sufficient. To these people you have to speak nicely, softly, gently. Somebody else you can tolerate. Somebody else you can, you can, you can speak firmly. But the Nalmona, Yosem, and Ager, the Rambam says you have to speak Dvorim, Rakim, Biyoser, Vanachas. And you have to treat them in the best way possible. And your attitude towards them has to be the best attitude possible. The Rambam keeps on saying, more than what anyone else. And you should try and do more and more in this matter. Because that's Jochea Darche Noam. So now we see that Jochea Darche Noam is a sliding scale. It depends who, and we'll see in a minute, it depends on the person himself or herself who's doing the action. Who is he? 
And then it depends on the recipient, right? Who you're talking to. And if that person, the Rambam says, is an Almona, a Ger, or a Yosom, so then you're held to a different standard. That's a different mitzvah. And that mitzvah is impelled because of the fact that we have raised the bar of Drochel Darchenoam. Our definition of being pleasant has been raised. And unless we, we are aware of that, so then we miss the value that the mitzvah attempted to put within us. There's an interesting point that the Ramban makes in his introduction to the Chumash. His parish to the Chumash, the, the Torah. The Ramban, as you all know, is a great Makubo. The Ramban is probably the first uh, person that put out a perush to the Torah, Alpi Kabbalah. He calls it Alpi Derech Sod, uh, the secret, or sometimes he calls Alpi Derech Oemes, the true way. But he says Kabbalah. In the int- so I mean, he says uh, Pshat. He says, says uh, his commentary uh, in the. Uh, in the rational way, but then he always adds uh, Kabbalistic ideas. The Ramban says in the introduction, and then it's a really it's strange why then he put it, he said, forget about the Kabbalah that I write in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in my parish. Don't, don't bother to look at it. Unless you're a great Mekubal. Unless you yourself are immersed in Kabbalah, and he doesn't mean the Kabbalah Center in Los Angeles. <laughs> Unless you are immersed in Kabbalah, he says, don't read it. It's not for you. Because the Torah is Drochea Darche Noam. It's the way of pleasantness. And Kabbalah is not the way of pleasantness. Because it raises us to a world that we don't understand and we don't see. And if you learn the Torah, or if you're involved in Kabbalah, and you don't understand it, and you're not worthy of it, so then the Torah is unpleasant to you. Because then the Torah says fanciful things that you have no idea what they're talking about. And therefore he says, Al-Yaharsu el-Hashem liros. Don't you, so this first part of the introduction is hardly ever taught. But it's the basis of a lot of problems in the Jewish world. He says, Al-Yaharsu lalos el-Hashem, he quotes the Posik that the Jewish people shouldn't run up the mountain of Sinai to come see God. Ki Hashem elokeinu eish ochla. God is an all-consuming fire. Who El Kanos is the God of zealousness. Who Yire Es Ritsuyov Mitoroso Niflos. And he shows to those who are able to see it wonders. However, Begodol Mimcha Al Tidrishu. But what is greater than you, farther than you, more than what you are, don't search there. What is too strong for you, don't bother to investigate it. 
in what is wiser than you, you'll never understand. And what is covered from you, don't bother to ask. You think about what you have permission to think about, meaning the nigla, the revealed Torah, and you have no business with the higher elements, with the Kabbalah, with the secret Torah, etc. Because then you destroy the Drochea Darche Noam. And that's what the Gemara says. Four great rabbis entered the realm of metaphysics, uh, the realm of Kabbalah. So one was uh, Shimon Ben Zoma. Shimon Ben Zoma uh, lost his mind, became insane from the matter. One was Shimon Ben Azai, who never married or had a family. One was Elisha Ben Avuya, who became an apostate, became an apicorus. And Rabbi Akiva was the only one that got in and got out whole. So again, why? Because it's not Darche Noam, right? It's not uh, the example that the Bali Musa always gave is that if you know if you go to someone's house, uh, it's not manners to go traipsing around the house and opening every closet, unless you're the mother-in-law. But otherwise. <laughs> Otherwise, it doesn't happen, right? It's none of your business. So the Bali Musa say that the, the Torah is our house. And when you come in, we're invited into the house. So you see the living room, the dining room, the kitchen maybe. And you know, that's open for you. But to go around, what are you doing opening the closet, right? You're not, you're, you're, it's not pleasant. It's not manners. It's not acceptable behavior. So he takes this idea and applies it to Kabbalah. And he says, Kabbalah is opening the closet. So if you're worthy, if you're Rabbi Akiva, if you're a great Mikubal, if you're the Ari, okay, Mele. But for ordinary people, uh, who really are not grounded in Kabbalah, and who have no uh, experience in the matter, so then uh, it's just uh, ill-mannered. It's not drachel darche noam. It's not pleasant. And because it's not pleasant, then you're not allowed to do it. It's not nice. We live in a time when, you know, Kabbalah is uh, just wonderful, right? Everybody's a Kabbalist. From Madonna upwards. Everybody's into it. Everybody wants spiritual. But uh, the Torah is not made that way. The Torah is meat and potatoes. Everybody wants dessert. Right? You go to a restaurant, you order five desserts. Good. But that's also not Darche Noam. And therefore, that was always the reluctance uh, of... Uh, of great sections of the Jewish people uh, to even discuss Kabbalah publicly or to have it out in the public domain because of the fact that 
it violates this principle of pleasantness of the Rambam says another idea of all of which we see in this value cuts across all of Torah the famous question is asked the Ramban and the Rambam discuss it why were the Egyptians punished? God said he told Avram Avinu that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And they will be slaves and they'll be tortured for 400 years. And then they'll be redeemed, they'll go out with it. So if God said it was going to happen, what do you want from the Egyptians? They just did what God said was going to happen. So the Ramban says... Uh, that the Egyptians were punished because uh, they enjoyed it and they overdid it. You can be a stranger and you can be a servant. You don't have to have uh, a quota of bricks without straw and you don't have to take children and mortar them into the walls. And Ramban says that they were punished for the excess. But he accepts the fact that the Egyptians somehow had an excuse that they could have said we only did what God told us to do. The Rambam uh, doesn't tolerate that. The Rambam says, God didn't say they had to do it. God just, not a commandment. God is just telling Avram Avinu that such a thing will happen. It will happen, he said. But I'm not commanding anybody to do it. Because to command somebody to do it is not not pleasant. That's not me. I never command any th- that such a thing should happen. And therefore he says, the Egyptians violated the Drocheo Darchi Noam. He says, why? First of all, Asher Lo Yodais Yosef. They were ungrateful. They had ingratitude for what Yosef did for them. And that is the root of being an unpleasant person is someone that has no sense of gratitude, no sense of appreciation, no sense of what was done for him. So then that's an obla- that, that itself is a violation of the principle. And therefore, the Rambam says that they were punished, the Egyptians were punished because they had no right to do it from the beginning. And that their behavior was a violation of Jochea Darche and therefore, the makos that came against them, the plagues, were justified. And being drowned at the Red Sea was justified. Simply because, in fact, that was the fruits of their own behavior, of how they themselves worked at it. The Rambam continues regarding Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe is punished. What is he punished for? Well, he hit the rocks. He hit the rock. So for that you don't go in there to Israel. The Jewish agency was unwilling to pick him up. Why? Hit the rock. So the Rambam has a theory. The Rambam's theory regarding Moshe is that's, that's the point that I made before, that since Moshe is the greatest of all human beings, so therefore his ways of pleasantness are held to the highest standard. Anger by Moshe is unacceptable. 
by Moshe, anger is not Rochel Darche Noam. And since it says, Vayiktsov Moshe, Moshe was angry, and in his anger he smote the rock, so it's not because he smote the rock, it's because he was angry. So Moshe violates his own principle of Drochea Darche Noam. Where do we see the Drochea Darche Noam by Moshe? We see it, he's willing to sit all day and all night and judge the Jewish people by himself. His father-in-law comes along, all fathers-in-law have better ideas. His father-in-law comes along and says, Novel Tibo, you'll waste away, this is not the way to do it. We make an administration of justice, we'll put it all together for you. And Moshe accepts it. What did Moshe think in the beginning? Everything that Yisrael told him he knew in the beginning. So the Rambam says, in the beginning he thought that Rochea Darche Noam compelled him to do it. A Jew comes and he has a problem. He has a Din Torah, and Moshe is going to say, you know, go see Shmerel, I'm busy. Go to this court, go to the Pakid. It's not Yochea Darche Noam, I came to see you. Everybody wants to have the Din Torah by Moshe, right? Nobody wants to have the Din Torah by Shmerel. So Moshe felt that Drochea Darche Noam, being a pleasant person, he has to submit himself to that discipline, to that regimen. He has to judge every case. He has to answer every question. When I was uh, the head of the OU, uh, also a few days ago, so uh, I get calls from... Uh, uh, my mashgichim from those uh, that were the kasher supervisors so in California they were three hours behind and then I had guys in Hawaii and I had guys in Thailand and they, so they called me two in the morning, three in the morning he get on the phone, he would say Rabbi Vine, he said I'm calling you now, I don't want to bother you in the office <laughs> But, you know, you got to take it, right? Because if you're, uh, what I'm going to tell them, don't call me. So then next time, you know, they'll have a crisis and he won't call me. So Moshe is always at the service of the people. And therefore, Moshe has this supreme value of Jocher Darchenon. If you have this supreme value of Jocher Darchenon, then what are you getting angry for? Who said that anger is permissible? And that, the Rambam says, was the source of why he wouldn't come into Eretz Israel. Because of the anger, not because of the action. We have another example. How the Torah itself and its wording is careful about Rachel Darche Noam. You have to pay attention to the words of the Torah. <coughs> Yosef HaTzadik goes to look for his brothers. Can't find them. He meets a man in the street, in the field. And he says to them, to him, uh, did you see my brothers? You know, ten guys in black hats walking around. Did you see them? Do you have any doubt that the Shvotim wore the... So the man answers him, Cain, yeah, I know, that, I know what you're talking about. Shomati, I heard them say, Nelcho dosoina. 
we're going to Dosan. So the Gemara Darshans, the Medrash Darshans on the word Nelchu Dosaina, that from the word Nochel, a conspiracy, Nochledas, they already conspired to make a law to justify the fact that they were going to kidnap and sell Yosef. And that that idea is what the Torah is telling us when it says, because who cares what where they went, right? I mean, it's not germane to the story. The Mephorshim say, Rashi is the one that says it here on the Posik. Nichleidosos. Avokolze rak beremes. The Torah didn't say that. The Torah said simply what? We're going to Dosa. And we will continue with Rai Wine's uh, elaboration on that specific Pasuk and uh, his lecture on pleasantness coming up at JM in the AM. Heading toward the top of the hour, and we have our news from Israel coming up at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. So that will happen next. And then, of course, we will continue with more of Rabbi Burrow Wine. The topic is pleasantness. The series is Jewish Values. The phone number is 1-800-499-WEIN. Email, or I should say rather uh, on the web, rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com. And I welcome all of you who are tuned in at 90.1 FM in the Catskills on a Monday morning at our Rockland County station at 91.9 FM. And it was great spending Shabbos up in Rockland County, Mazel Tov, to Yaakov Moshe Golding, who had an amazing Bar Mitzvah celebration. And to Asura and Ding and the entire family, the extended Golding and Waxman families, a major Mazel Tov. And um, around the world, and our main base, I should say, at 91.1 on the FM dial for New Jersey and New York, and of course around the world on the web at jmtheam.org. It's a minute before 7 o'clock. 74 degrees, isolated thunderstorms, a high temperature of 87. Today is Rosh Chodesh. All the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh, Yalaviyavo, Hallel, or half Hallel, I should say. Um, special Torah reading. Musaf Barachinavshi. Today is Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av, the first of the nine days, which will conclude with Tisha B'Av next Tuesday on the 16th of July. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web at jmdm.org. Galit's on the background. News from Israel is coming up as we get set for hour number two of our Monday morning nine days format program. Reminder, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall on Tisha B'Av for the 36th consecutive year. A Tisha B'Av prayer service which began at the Soviet UN mission and then moved to the UN will be held at the United Nations this year. A Tisha B'Av prayer service to focus on dangers facing Israel and Jewish communities around the world. We uh, Davin Mincha with uh, Talis and Tefillin at 2 p.m. one week from tomorrow. First Avenue and 43rd Street on the west side of the street, opposite the United Nations. Please, please make sure to plan to be with us. It's um, an inspiring 
and the unifying Mincha service, which is uh, always uh, interesting with special guest speakers and always a very fascinating gathering. So 2 o'clock this coming uh, Tisha B'Av, a week from tomorrow at the Isaiah Wall, 1st Avenue, 43rd Street in New York City. Stay with our stream all day long at jmtheam.org for our nine days format. Again, that's uh, jmtheam.org all day long on our stream. We turn back into a uh, quote-unquote regular stream of regular format the day after Tisha B'Av in the early part of the afternoon. And that is when I guess the summer season will begin in earnest. All right, Gali Tal in the background. News from Israel is coming up, and then a conclusion of Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on Jewish values. You can contact Rabbi Wine's office for his lectures and all information at 1 800 499 WEIN or Rabbi Wine, Gali Tal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Monday is next on this Rosh Chodesh. Boker Tov, Chodesh Tov from Jamie. Galitza al-Shah Shtayim, Kan Shibel Karmi Mansur, Imma Shekorea Akshav. Ahamas, Asuy Lashalem, Mechir Kaved al-Afiha b-Mitzrayim, Omer Bakneset, Hassar Yaakov Peri, Katabenu Ido Ben Baji, Shamaoto. Asur Amulitalem, Mina Mahaluma, Hamedini, Takasha, Shekhataf Ahamas, Ekeba Mouraot b-Mitzrayim. Ahamas Aluliyot Arishon, שישלם מחיר קשה וכבד בזירה הבינלאומית ובזירה הפנים-פלסטינית ויש סיכוי שהאופוזיציה בעזה תרים ראש נחשפים ממדי ההרג במתקפה על המבנה שבו עצור מורסי בקהיר עשרות מהם אנשי האחים המוסלמים ג'קי חוגי מדווח 42 הרוגים ויותר מ-300 פצועים זה קציר הדמים הבוקר בקהיר במהלך התקפה על מטה המשמר הרפובליקני שבו עצור מוחמד מורסי כמעט כל הנפגעים הם תומכי מורסי והאחים המוסלמים. קצין אחד נהרג. באחים המוסלמים טוענים כי החיילים פתחו באש ראשונים במהלך תפילת השחר. האם התקיימו באחרונה מגעים ישירים בין ישראל לפלסטינים? בלשכת ראש הממשלה בירושלים אומרים שלא, לאחר שמוקדם יותר טען אשרף אל-עג'רמי, מי שהיה השר הפלסטיני לענייני אסירים, כי בזמן האחרון התנהלו בביתו של נתניהו שיחות בין ראש הממשלה לבין נציגי הרשות. עג'רמי דיבר בכנסת בדיון מדיני מיוחד של יוזמת ג'נבה. אני פה רוצה לחשוף סוד. אנחנו קיימנו משא ומתן עם ביבי נתניהו בביתו של נתניהו הרבה שעות ישבו יחד זה בזמן האחרון מי ניהל את המשא ומתן מטעם? יאסר עבד רבו מול ביבי ישירות ישב בביתו אנחנו בעד שירות מילואים, ורבים מעובדינו משרתים פרקי זמן ממושכים, אומרים היום בחברת אל על. החברה הגיבה להקלטה שהביא כתבנו טל אברהם, ואשר בה נשמעות מנהלות כוח אדם באל על, כשהן מפעילות לחץ על דיילת, בניסיון למנוע ממנה לצאת למילואים בחודש אוגוסט העמוס בעבודה. כתבנו יותם ברגר שמע לפני הצהריים את יושב ראש השדולה בכנסת למען חיילי המילואים, חבר הכנסת מהעבודה. זה מקרה באמת מהחמורים שנתקלתי בהם. חברה שמוגדרת חברה לאומית של ישראל, האם יש זמן נכון למילואים? אין אף פעם זמן טוב ונכון למילואים. ולכן אם אמירה כזו אכן נאמרה, צריך לטפל בחומרה הנדרשת.
חסר בית או לא, עדיין צריך לשלם אגרת טלוויזיה. אסף ליברמן. עד לפני חצי שנה אפרים היה חסר בית והתקיים מנדבות של עוברי אורח. באחרונה הצליח לזכות בקצבאות של הביטוח הלאומי וגם מצא מקום צנוע לשהות בו. אלא שפתאום רשות השידור החליטה להקל 2,000 שקלים מהקצבה החודשית שלו בגלל אי תשלום אגרת הטלוויזיה. את הפרטים נביא היום בשלוש בתוכניתנו יהיה בסדר גלי צה"ל. אלה החדשות שעורך עומר בן רובי. JMNAM, that's our news from Israel. We now continue with the conclusion of Rabbi Berlwein's uh, lecture from his Jewish Values series on the topic of pleasantness. We have another example. How the Torah itself and its wording is careful about Rachea Darche Noam. You have to pay attention to the words of the Torah. <coughs> Yosef HaTzadik goes to look for his brothers. Can't find them. He meets a man in the street, in the field. And he says to them, to him, Uh, did you see my brothers? You know, ten guys in black hats walking around. Did you see them? Do you have any doubt that the Shvotim wore them? <laughs> so the man answers him, Cain, yeah, I know. That, I know what you're talking about. Shomati, I heard them say, We're going to Dosan. So the Gemara Darshans, the Medrash Darshans on the word, Neilchud Dosoina, That from the word nochel, a conspiracy, nochledas, they already conspired to make a law to justify the fact that they were going to kidnap and sell Yosef. And that that idea is what the Torah is telling us when it says, neilchu dosoina, because who cares what, where they went, right? I mean, it's not germane to the story. The Mephorshim say, Rashi is the one that says it here on the Posik. Nichlei dosos. Avokolze rak beremes. The Torah didn't say that. The Torah said simply what? Neilcho dosoino. We're going to doso. We take the words neilcho dosoino and we read into it the fact that they made this conspiracy. Why didn't the Torah say it? Because if the Torah would have said it, the whole story would be much clearer. And you wouldn't ask, why did the Torah write where they went? Who cares where they went? So he says, Mishum We don't want to say with a full mouth. It's not nice that the Torah should write with a full mouth what the brothers were going to do. And therefore the Torah left it over only hidden in the words. So that if you want to, you can read the Parsha simply, quickly. They went to Dosan, fine. But if you really want to understand it, it means more than that. It means they conspired to destroy him. But the Torah won't say it openly. Rashi says the same thing in the beginning of Chumash Dvarim. In the beginning of Chumash Dvarim, so it says... And then it lists all the places that the Jewish people went. Chatzeros, Vidi Zahov, etc. 
So Rashi says, Lefishain divrei tochochos. Moshe is going to tell them off now, right? Moshe is going to, you know, the last speech, so he's going to tell the members really what he thinks. So he's going to tell, he's going to give them tochocha. He's going to give them a hard time now. And therefore he names every place where the Jewish people sinned in the desert. But it doesn't say that. It's just, uh, just names places, right? So if you learn it simply, you know, you just pass it by. So he's just telling you, Ben Tofel, the Zohov, the Chatseros, all of these are places, oases in the desert. Not more than that. So Rashi says, he's Kiram Baremes. They only alluded to it. Because he didn't want to insult the Jewish people. And therefore he only alluded to it. Amevin Yovin. Those that get it, they'll get it. And those that don't get it, leave them alone. Because the Torah is not going to say it with a full mouth. The Torah doesn't criticize in that fashion. And so that even in the words of the Torah, the Torah itself is bound by this value of the fact that it has to do it in a pleasant way. I knew a Jew in Chicago that was in the kolel in Eishishok when the Chafetz Chaim ran the kolel. So he told me once that uh, he missed uh, one or two sdorim to learn. If whatever happened, he didn't show up. So the Chafetz Chaim called him in to, uh, you know, to call him on the carpet. So he said the Chafetz Chaim turned around, he didn't look at him, he turned around, he talked to the wall, literally to the wall. And he said, I don't know, you know, some people don't come to the Seder. I don't know, how can it be that some people shouldn't come to the Seder? They shouldn't come to learn when they should come to learn. I, I don't know how such a thing happens. And he's, and he's got his back to him the whole time, he's not talking to him. And he says, uh, it must be that there was a good reason. Because it couldn't be that people shouldn't come to the Seder when they're supposed to come to the Seder. So there must have been a very good reason. So I'm sure that the person, uh, once the reason is settled, will come to the Seder whenever he has to come. That was the speech. It's beremis. To be able to tell somebody something without telling it to him. Because that's Jocheo Darchenoa. The famous story with the Chofetz Chaim that, uh, that I heard from the Ponevizhorov, that the Ponevizhorov said that he saw it, that the Chofetz Chaim went to collect money uh, for the yeshiva, and a person came and gave him a large donation and stuck out his hand to him, but the person was not a, was not a Shomer Shabbos at a time when most Jews were. He was not a Sabbath observer. So the Chofetz Chaim took his hand and he looked at him and he said, He said, such a good hand should burn in hell? How could that be? So he didn't give him any musr on, on being a, a Shomer Shabbos. And in the Vishpon of Vishorov told me the man became a Shomer Shabbos immediately. He just terrorized him. So that's Drocheo Darchinoam.
It says in the Torah, Vayikru elakim laor yom, velachoshech kor aloyla. The Rabboni Shalom called light day, velachoshech kor aloyla. doesn't say God called darkness night. By or it says the name of Hashem, Vayikru elakim laor yom. Lachoshech, it doesn't say Elohim, it doesn't say anybody. Koraloila was called night. Because Darchenoam, night people are afraid of. It's dark. We don't want to put God's name there. So the Torah only said, Lachoshech Koraloila. By or it says, Vayikra Elohim Laor Yom. We have a halacha that women are not Mitsuva Alpiri of Arivia. Women are not commanded to have children well if men are commanded to have children and women are not commanded how does it happen <laughs> how come then what's the logic in the halacha the ultimate portion say that God placed the maternal instinct within women and women want children and families etc etc that still begs the question so the enforcing say because Childbirth is a painful experience, a greatly painful experience. The Torah cannot command somebody to go through painful experiences. So the Torah said it's not a mitzvah. Aye, it happens, etc. Good, fine. That's the way the world is going to work. Excellent. But to say that's a mitzvah, I told you to do it, and then to suffer that pain, that's not Jochel Darchinoam. The Torah wouldn't do it. The Rajbam of Boba Basra says, on uh, the Rajbam is Rashi's grandson. So uh, in the laws of inheritance in the Torah, in the Parsha of the daughters of Tzlovchad, so in the laws of inheritance, the laws are that if a man has a son, then the son inherits him. If a man has no sons, then the daughters inherit. If a man has no sons or daughters, so then... The father of the man inherits. It goes up. It's always in a vertical line. But if you look in the Chumash, it doesn't say that. In the Chumash it says that the brothers inherit, not the father. So then how do we reconcile the fact that the halacha is that it's the father who inherits, and the, uh, the Chumash says the brothers that inherit. So the Rajbam says, it's drachea darche noam, that a father, should God forbid, inherit a son, is not pleasant. And therefore the Torah didn't want to write it. The Torah left it for Torah Shabal Pet, they'll straighten it out. They'll, the halacha will come out straight. But that we should say such a thing, it's not drachea darche noam. And the Torah therefore didn't want to say it. So you see that drachea darche noam governs the Torah itself. The Torah is not unpleasant. Tell you one last point also that the Gemara in Yavomas, the Gemara in Yavomas discusses a man that had two wives and they died, he died without children and one of the wives has to have Yibum or Chlitza and they, what happened with the other? And the other wife went off and got married. And so it's a machlokas beishamai and beisila whether what the other wife needed that she need anything or not. So beishamai says that she also needed chalitza. She had to have the uh, the uh, ceremony of chalitza in order to marry. So the Gemara says, but she already married. 
So the Gemara says, but if she gets chalitza now, after she's married, her husband will feel very uncomfortable with her. Because he'll think that they were not legitimately married before. So the Gemara says, who cares? What I care if the husband feels uncomfortable or not? So the Gemara says, what are you talking about? Well, you can't say that we're going to put them in an uncomfortable situation. The Torah is pleasantness. The Torah is Jocheo Darchinoam. But the Gemara in Sukkah says, you're not allowed to have a lulav that has jagged edges at the side. Because you may cut yourself. Jocheo Darchinoam, the Gemara says. The Torah is pleasant. The Torah would never tell you to take a lulav that can cut you. So we see from all of this that the only way uh, that uh, a Jew can reach uh, what he should be is by applying drachea darchenoam in every facet of one's behavior in life. And therefore we say you have to do mitzvahs pleasantly, you have to treat people pleasantly, you have to treat yourself pleasantly. And the Gemara says that the whole idea of obscenities and of evil speech, etc., is because it's not darchenoam, it's not pleasant. Nobody likes to hear it. And therefore, this is one of the overriding values that uh, sets us on the path that the Torah wanted us to achieve and makes us v'yisem kadoshim kikodosh oni, allows us to at least aspire to be a holy people and to emulate our Creator, who is also, so to speak, bound by this concept and value of pleasantness. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. For information, please contact the Destiny Foundation at 1-800-499-WINE. That is the phone number, 1-800-499-WEIN, for information about any of Rabbi Beryl Wine's lectures. And uh, you can also go to the web, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Monday morning, it's Rosh Chodesh morning. Today's the first day of Menachem Av. All the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh are included in uh, today's um, uh, davening and today's uh, services. Everybody out there, we uh, hope that the month of Av, which has not been a traditionally pleasant month, Rabbi Wine on the uh, topic of pleasantness, has not been a traditionally pleasant month, will in fact uh, turn out to be a very pleasant one for all. 74 degrees, isolated thunderstorms, and a high temperature of 87 we say good morning at JM and the AM and remind you that our nine days format will continue with the centerpiece being the lectures of Rabbi Beryl Wine, the series that we have embarked on to open up our nine days format is entitled Jewish Values and this one is called Peace. Tonight's lecture concerns itself with Shalom, which uh, is one of the universal values of Judaism. And as we saw with Jocheo Darchinoam, uh, with pleasantness, uh, when we're speaking about universal values, it cuts across the whole spectrum of Jewish life. It influences halacha, and it is also meant naturally to influence human behavior, to set the standard, the bar for what a Jew is supposed to be. Now the word shalom as we understand it usually is translated in English as peace. 
but to a certain extent that's a minimal translation of the word. The word shalom is from the word shalem, which means to be whole. It really means more harmony than it means peace. Our understanding of peace is uh, pretty much an absence of uh, Katusha rockets. But uh, the idea of shalom that is represented in the Torah and represented in Chazal is far deeper than that. It's an idea of harmony, of an inner harmony, of a person that's at peace, so to speak, with oneself. It's like harmony in a uh, symphony orchestra or in a musical piece. So you have many different instruments and many different sounds. And sometimes the sounds almost clash. And yet there's a harmony to it that gives it a beauty and gives it a, a sense of spiritual uplift. Well, that's the type of shalom that the Torah describes here. It's a harmony, a harmony within oneself, because we are all made up of different pieces, and somehow that has to have a harmonious whole. And it's a harmony in a family where uh, different personalities exist. Uh, and unfortunately, a uh, I had a friend who unfortunately lived all of his life being a bachelor and always said he couldn't see himself devoting the rest of his life to a stranger. Which is one way of looking at it. But uh, harmony in a family is to be able to live, so to speak, with strangers, with people who are different than you are, have different needs, different personality, even perhaps different outlook on things. It's certainly not meant to be a conformity. And that's certainly true regarding children where each child is a world unto himself or herself. And then we have uh, peace in the community, peace in the synagogue, sense of harmony. So again, you're dealing with uh, all sorts of different personalities, ideas, temperaments. And then when we raise it to the national and international level, the peace between nations, peace between faiths, peace between cultures. So then again, we're looking somehow uh, to uh, be able to live in harmony, accepting the other. And because of that, therefore, it requires an effort more than an effort. It requires an attitude on the part of anyone that wants to truly achieve peace. So the rabbis did, the, the, uh, the rabbis defined it early in the book, in the Talmud. <clears throat> they took the posik in Tanakh and they said that this is the definition of peace. Ein shalom amar Hashem l'rishoyim. An evil person is incapable of ever achieving harmony. So they equated peace, harmony, with goodness, with not doing evil. And the Posik says, Varishoyim Kayom Nigrosh, the evil people are like a sea, a raging torrent, the waves push up against the shore. They are never, uh, never stop. They're never at rest. 
And this harmonious whole is based upon the idea that a person wants to be a good person. A Chazal say, a cryptic idea. Gimel Shlomo say, there are three types of peace. Nohor, a river. Tzipor, a bird. Kedera, a pot or a kettle. Rabbi Feldman, Aaron Feldman, the Rosh Yeshiva of Baltimore, wrote an interesting book called The River, the Bird, and the Kettle. Since no one could figure out the title, everyone bought the book. (laughs) But the book is about these three types of peace. And each one represents this kind of harmony. Uh, There's a harmony that is... Uh, like a river that flows, that makes its way, uh, that carries others with it. Uh, that kind of a harmony uh, requires the ability to uh, accept within it all sorts of different material. Anyone who has seen uh, the Mississippi River uh, when it uh, emanates into the Gulf of Mexico so it has taken the mud and the dirt and the silt of uh, the American continent from where it began up in Minnesota all the way down. Uh, it carries it all with it. And that's the idea of a river. A river accepts. It takes things with it. It doesn't never is interrupted in its flow. A river is also able to make new channels. Uh, it finds its way. It gets stopped up in one place. In the American Civil War, the uh, Union Army tried to dam the Mississippi in a few places in order to be able to conquer the Confederate stronghold of Vicksburg. And all of their efforts failed because the Mississippi found another way to go around. Uh, a river, uh, no matter how... Uh, Um, we try to change or stop it, always finds its course, always somehow is able to come on. And that's the idea of peace. The shalom is a nohor. It's a river. The drive for the harmony within a person, and the drive for peace is of such a nature that even if it's blocked, it will find another channel. Because it's a, uh, as the rabbi saw it, it's an innate instinctive part of being human. A human being desires it. And therefore it will flow. It will come. The idea of the bird is also the same thing. The rabbi said that a bird is able to fly above things. What does that mean? A bird, we say in English, or you have a bird's eye view. A bird's eye view means you see things from the top. You see it in perspective. Most of the time, in anger or in war or in other uh, events that are not pleasant and are not peaceful, is because things are seen in their immediate state. They're seen almost in a two-dimensional state. But if they would be seen from above, if they would be seen with a historical perspective, if they'd be seen, so to speak, the way God sees it from heaven, so then peace is much easier to obtain. We're able to uh, deal with it in a sense uh, that we see a broader picture, a deeper perspective. If you see things superficially, not the way a bird, 
but the way we see it from ground level so then uh, uh, you miss much uh, all of the uh, uh, sporting events that appear on television today are all taken from an upper level right simply because of the fact that otherwise you miss what's going on so that was the bird and the pot now the pot has many interpretations but the one that uh, strikes home to me is the fact that uh, you need a pot in order to cook things you can have uh, all the meat and potatoes and carrots and everything in the world but if you have no pot to put it in so then it's very very difficult to prepare the food but a pot is the container peace, harmony is seen as a container and we'll see that the rabbis say God never found anything that could contain all the blessings I'll give somebody all the blessings of the world health and wealth, family, success popularity, good looks but without peace the person is ruined nothing brings satisfaction that's why you see many times that some of the most successful people in the world are some of the most unsuccessful people in the world they're simply they're not at peace they have no sense of harmony no sense of purpose so Shalom was seen as a pot Chazal say the same idea about Yerash Shomayim. It says, Yerash uh, Shomayim he otsoro. That a person that has fear of heaven, so he has the treasure, he has the bag. I always use the example, I remember the first time I came to Israel. So uh, when I came to Israel almost 40 years ago, uh, none of the grocery stores gave you a bag to take your purchases home. And I come from the United States where, you know, they not only they give you a bag, they have somebody there to bag it for you, and they t- take it out to the car for you. And, yes, sir. Come back again, sir. So I'm, you know, I'm on Alice in Wonderland here. And so I don't know, I bought 10 items, 12 items, and it's lying on the counter. And I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me. And I say to him, You got to bring your own bags. We don't give bags here. So you can imagine, I put the sour cream in my pocket, and you know, and and the milk in my shirt pocket. You know, I came all. Can you imagine what it looked like at the end? But that's the interpretation, right? You can have all the blessings, but you don't have a bag to take it home in. You don't have a container for it. Uh, so then uh, you're pretty much lost. So the Mishnah says, Rabboni Shalom, look to give us a bag. Look to give us uh, something that we could take everything with us with. J.M. in the A.M. are by Beryl Wine on the topic of peace from the CD series entitled Jewish Values. Monday morning, Rosh Chodesh morning at J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Goldwasser in a moment, then the conclusion of this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. I thank you all for tuning in. I want to wish a mazel tov to Yaakov Moshe Golding. It was wonderful being a part of the Bar Mitzvah celebration this past Shabbos up in Muncie. To Sarah and Ding and the extended Waxman and uh, Golding families, mazel tov from all of us here 
at JM in the AM. It was really an extra special event, really wonderful. Reminder that uh, today is Rosh Chodesh Av, all the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh on this very first day of Menachem Av. There will be a Tishabav prayer service, Mincha, with Talas and Tefillin, a week from tomorrow at the Isaiah Wall, 1st Avenue and 43rd Street in New York City. Information on that, 212-663-5784, 212-663-5784. Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture series available, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or Rabbi Wine, WEIN.com. Rabbi Wine, W-E-I-N dot com. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We say in Tehillim, Mizmar Asaf, a song to Asaf. Rashi notes it would have been perhaps more appropriate to begin Kinala Asaf, a dirge for Asaf as this chapter mostly describes the destruction of the Beis HaMikdosh. Rashi explains that Asaf sang because Hashem in His mercy poured His wrath on the stones and wood and not on Klal Yisrael. Rashi also offers an explanation in Shmos. Elep Kudea Mishkan, Mishkan Oedus. The word Mishkan is repeated twice. This alludes to the fact that the destruction of each of the two temples was collateral for the sins of the Jewish nation. In a similar vein, the Sefer Menachem Tzion states that the destruction of the Beis HaMikdosh is because Klal Yisroel was saved from total annihilation. This is an expression of our Hakara Satov, or our gratitude. The Dubno Magid presents an interesting situation to illustrate the appropriate mindset that is demanded because of the Beis HaMikdosh and its destruction. A woman who hadn't had any children for many years finally was pregnant. When it was time for her to give birth, however, the doctor told her it would be impossible to ensure the life of both mother and child, and therefore he recommended terminating the pregnancy in order to save the mother's life. The mother said, I have no desire for life if you choose to do that. It would be better that I die and that my child should live. And so the child was born and the woman passed on. When the boy grew older, he was taken to the gravesite on the day of the yard site of his mother in order to say Kaddish. Those in attendance noted that the boy was neither contemplative nor was he serious. He seemed rather light-hearted and irreverent. The people who had accompanied this young boy explained to him that his mother had given up her own life for his and in fact deserved a lot more from him. The son was overwhelmed because he was unaware of the true circumstances of his birth. So it is with us. Can we possibly say that we are like that young boy who didn't realize what his mother had done for him? Do we mourn over the loss of the Beis HaMikdosh? Do we say Kaddish for the Beis HaMikdosh with reverence, being cognizant of the immensity of the loss we have suffered, acknowledging the kapara that we attained as a result? Or is there an air of levity and diversion 
something that takes us away from our mourning over the loss of the Beis Hamikdash. It's during these days that we remember the Chazal, whoever properly mourns over Yerushalayim in the Beis Hamikdash will merit to see its rebuilding speedily in our days. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. on this Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. Good morning all. Thanks for joining us as we head back to work on a Monday at J.M. in the A.M. Nine days format will continue, of course, through next Tuesday through Tisha B'Av. Rabbi Beryl Wine is um, presenting a lecture from his Jewish Values series entitled Peace. Rabbi Beryl Wine continues at J.M. in the A.M. The only thing that he found was peace, was harmony that a person should have that sense of, uh, of well-being that Shalom brings. And that's why one of the names of God, so to speak, in Hebrew is Shalom. One of the questions is if you have a doormat, and on it it says Shalom, so it's not necessarily correct to have the doormat. Because then people step on it, hopefully, and uh, they're stepping on the name of God. So God put His name, so to speak, in this concept of shalom. That's how important it is. So when we say shalom, we say harmony, we're saying God. Because God is the ultimate harmony, the ultimate uh, reconciler of all things. We know, uh, the, we say it in our prayers often, uh, that the scholars of Israel bring about a great deal of peace. Well, uh, without being too heretical, many times that's not easy to see. Because many times you see that between the Talmidei Chachomim themselves, uh, there are vast differences of opinion, sometimes even... Uh, stronger than differences of opinion. Where's the Marbim Shalom Bolom? So, uh, my father in law, blessed memory, uh, always used to say on this that uh, this is not a statement, it's a challenge. The task of a Talmud Chochem, the task of a knowledgeable Jew, is whether he increases peace in the world or not. Whether or not uh, within himself, within his family, within his community, within his synagogue, are things better because of him? Are they more peaceful? Do people get along better? Is there a quieter atmosphere? Or is it all the time? So Talmidah Chachomi Marbim Sholom Ba'olam is the challenge. And it's an especially important challenge to a Talmud Chochem because of the fact that he has the equipment, he has the knowledge of Torah uh, that is supposed to bring this about. And therefore the rabbis say in the, uh, the Gemara, Ezvohei uh, <coughs> Basufo, commenting on those three words that are uh, part of the song that appears in Chumash Bamidbar, so it says that Talmidei Chachomim argue with each other. 
the Talmud agrees that they should argue with each other because that's how we come to decisions, that's how we air all the opinions, that's how we gain our knowledge. It's the give and take. You look through the Talmud, the Talmud is uh, 75-80% arguments, discussions, disagreements. But the end is as voe basufa. And the Gemara says they don't leave the Beis HaMedrish Achenasu oavim zelozeh Vohev from the word oav Till they become lovers of each other So it's the ability to hear different opinions And to respect and even love the person that has it Even if you feel that his opinion is incorrect And that's a level of challenge that is not easily met. I remember uh, uh, Rabbi Christ with a blessed memory. So in the yeshiva, when he would say to Shear, once in a while he would make a statement, and someone would argue with the statement, and then they'd argue back and forth at the top of their lungs. And then he would stop in the middle, and he would say, Listen, he said, you may be right, but I have to teach today, so leave me alone. I'll talk to you afterwards. And that like released all the tension. Uh, because of the fact that you can have two opinions and still love each other. If you're able to rise above it. If you're able to be that kind of a person. But in the viciousness of uh, personality, uh, especially in the political and power reigns, so then all of that gets lost. And the society suffers thereby. Now, Chazal said that it's not enough. Uh, We have the example, who is the champion peacemaker in the world? The, uh, The role model, the paradigm of a peacemaker, that we learn what peace means. So that's Aaron HaKoyim. Hillel said, always be a student of Aaron. Oev Shalom, Aaron loved peace. Rodev Shalom, he pursued peace. Oev Esabrios, he loved people. Makorvan la Torah, and he brought them close to Torah. Now, Aaron Akoin built the eagle. Aaron Akoin is uh, the contributing factor to the fact that the Jews constructed the golden calf. The rabbis saw in that a warning. Like all measures in the Torah, like all characteristics in the Torah, there's a balance here. To go to extremes is dangerous. Aaron doesn't want to fight with the Jewish people. They want to build an eagle. So he's a nice guy. Let's build an eagle. Bring me, bring me your jewelry. Uh, take the golden earrings and bring them here, and we'll make an eagle. And you know, and everybody will be happy. Moshe, who is his brother, who is a far sterner material. Moshe comes down, he grinds the eagle into dust, he makes them drink it, he kills 3,000 Jews, he burns it all down. Moshe saved the Jewish people. Aaron uh, pays a heavy penalty in his own personal life. All of his life he bears that burden. Yet, 
Aaron remains the symbol of peace. Because again, in order to achieve peace, you need those characteristics of Aaron. But you also need Moshe to balance that. Because in every situation, and not in every situation uh, does that fit, right? We are not pacifists at all causes, you know, in all circumstances. That's suicidal. But what we do learn from our own is, Oev Shalom, to love peace, even if I don't have it yet. And Bake Shalom Vrod Fail. It says in the Pesach. You have to search for it and you have to actively pursue it. It is not a passive matter. It is something that has to be actively pursued. And therefore, Chazal say, An bakei sholom v'rodfeu, bakshayu bimkomcha v'rodfeu b'mokam acher. Try and find it in your place. And if you can't find it, then pursue it somewhere else. The Rambam says regarding that, that if a person lives in a community that's very contentious, that's full of divisions, full of quarrels, he should move. The Rambam generally is in favor of moving. He says if you're in a place where they don't let you observe the Torah, move. The Rambam is... uh, the Rambam's solution to the problems that beset us is to find ourselves a different environment. He almost despairs of one person changing the environment. So you're also, you're in a place that's querulous, that everybody is fighting, everybody, move, leave. That's bakei sholom v'rodfeu, pursue it somewhere else. Because person lives in a contentious environment that has an effect upon that person. In the Posig we read, Sholom Vemes Nivgoshu, truth and peace have met. Now we all know that truth and peace are antagonistic one to another. Right? Somebody asks you, how do you like my new suit? It's terrible. Looks awful. Peace will not exist between us. And that's on a minor issue. On major issues, it certainly is. So which should trump? Which should win? Whether we should have... It's better to have peace or better to have absolute truth. In the history of the Jewish people, there have been groups that have wavered. Sometimes in favor of truth and sometimes in favor of peace. Uh, the great Kotzke Rebbe and uh, Menachem Mendel Morgenstern, uh, so he was a great devotee of truth. So he would get up Rosh Hashanah before the sounding of the shofar and deliver his Rosh Hashanah sermon, which went something like this. Ganovim, Rotschim, Menoachim, Thieves, murderers, immoral people. According to, to, to legend, people jumped out of the window of the base medrash. It was a one-story building. They jumped out of the window of the base medrash because they couldn't take it. 
Uh, well, he didn't have to have his contract renewed, so he could uh, he could afford to say. But that's the truth, right? Ruben Begezo. Most people are caught with money that's not theirs. So that's Emmis. Emmis burns. Shalom. Shalom is the ability to overlook Emmis. How do you like my suit? Oh, that's a very nice suit. Wear it in good health. And you look very good in purple. We're talking to a man. So, uh, who wins? So the Gemara says uh, two remarkable things. The Gemara says, you see that the Torah itself voted for peace over truth. In two instances. It says, the Torah... The Torah wrote words that are not true in order to preserve, to show you that peace should be preserved at the expense of truth. First incident, incident is Avraham and Sora. Uh, God comes to Sora and he tells her, You know, you're going to have a child. Sora is 90 years old. So she laughs. And she says to herself, After I have become so withered, all of a sudden I will become refreshed. I'll become young again. And even if it happens to me, He's an old man. He, he, what good does it do to... He's, he's old. He's too old to have father or child. When the Lord repeats the conversation to Avraham, God says, Why did Sora laugh? Why did she doubt? And she said that she wouldn't be able to have a child. God did not tell him the second part of the sentence. He did not tell him. And she said, you're an old man. Which human beings would love to say to the person. God didn't say that. Omits it. Why? Because he knew that Avram would feel badly, and he would then have a complaint to Sora, and she'd have a complaint back to him, and then go to Lasholo. Great is peace in the house. The second incident is by Yosef. The brothers, after their father Yaakov died, the brothers came to Yosef and they said. Your father, before he died, told us to tell you, you should be nice to us. Don't take revenge for what we did to you. He never said that, Yaakov. Either because of any interpretation, either because he was unaware of the story or if he was aware of the story, he thought that, that it was over. So the Torah wrote that. So now the Torah doesn't write things that are not true, even if they're quoting somebody. Every word in the Torah is emes, is true. So why did the Torah write an untruth? 
Why did it write something that is not true? Because of Sholem. Because then the brothers, Yosef saw how deeply the brothers were still affected by the matter. Therefore, uh, he uh, reconciled himself fully to them. He wept and he said, would I do anything to you? So the Torah itself, in these two instances, went out of its way to show you that the value of peace, of harmony, is sometimes greater than the value of truth. And that therefore the Talmud says that it's possible that the Torah allows us to tell less than the truth not just a white lie, but a full lie in order to preserve truth in order to preserve peace rather in the only instance where we find that the Torah departs from its strict rule that a person should be truthful a person's word means something so we see the overriding value of what it is to retain a peaceful environment both in the home and in the community Chazal expanded on that idea Uh, a famous story in the Talmud that a husband was angry at a wife the whole story between them and he accused her of something and she said no and then uh, the, the, the test was that if she went and she spat at Rabbi Meir, uh, then uh, they would be reconciled. So she came to the base medrash, and she spat at Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir knew the story, and she spat at him. And he uh, he allowed it to happen. So his Talmidim, his students, said to him, Rabbi, kach mevazin Torah. That's how you let Torah be uh, shamed that a woman from the street, because she's got a problem, should come and spit at you? And you should let it happen? And Rameyer answered. He said, we have a halacha of sota, of a woman that's suspected of infidelity. Part of the process of the sota was that they took a parchment that had this parsha written on it, and included in this parsha was the ineffable name of God, the four-letter name of God. And they took the parsha, and they dipped it in water. The water dissolved the ink from the parsha, so that God's name was erased, so to speak. So a mayor said, look, if God is willing to allow His name to be erased so that there can be harmony in the family between this husband and wife, so then who is Reb Meir not to allow himself to undergo what looks like an embarrassment, an insult, in order to bring peace about between a husband and wife? And that concept Uh, reverberates throughout the Talmud that a person has to allow himself I remember uh, I was once at a uh, 
at a convention, a large convention of, uh, of a Jewish organization in uh, the United States. And uh, I was there with uh, one of the great, uh, great men of that generation. And uh, he knew that when uh, uh, he would enter the hall, everyone would stand up for him. And there was there uh, uh, a younger man who was having all sorts of problems. Uh, he wasn't respected in his community, he was having marital problems, etc. And so the great rabbi said to me, go over and fetch that man, bring him here. And when he came, so he took him by the arm and he marched in together with him. So when everybody stood up, he told him, he said, your wife will see that everybody stands up for you. You'll see that'll help. She'll have, you, she'll have more, more of an understanding because everybody stands up for you. So the, uh, so uh, I, you know, in my uh, great uh, understanding of the matter. So when I drove him home later, I said to him, "But you know, Rebbe, it's not honest. If he would have walked in by himself, nobody would have stood up for him, right?" He looked at me and he said, "This Gemara." He said, "Honest up there. I'm better than Remeir. Remeir's better than the Rebbeinu Shalelim. If you can help in a domestic dispute, if you can help somehow to patch it up, so then you know. So what do you mean, honest? You have to be willing to somehow have your name erased in the waters in order that peace should prevail." So it's such an overriding value that that's the that's the pursuit of peace. you got to look for a way to make it. Say, the man didn't come to him and say, can I walk in with you? It'll help me. But he knew the situation. And he knew that it would help him. And therefore he pursued it. He said, go fetch him, go bring him here to me. We're going to walk in together. So we'll be able to stand up. You'll see that it will have a salutary effect upon your wife. And that will help in the matter of Shalom. We have a concept in Halacha called Darke Shalom. The path of peace. So the rabbis made konos because of darke sholom. For instance, in our relationship with the non-Jewish world. So not just the non-Jewish world, but the pagan world. The difference. With a world that worships idols. The rabbis said you have to support their poor. You can't say, well, if I support them, it only contributes to more paganism. Uh, the rabbi said that you have to bury their dead, you have to heal their sick, you have to clothe their naked. We are responsible, because that's Dark Sholom. That's the harmony in the world. And the fact that you want to limit it to yourself, uh, that was not uh, part of it. That was not allowed. 
And the rabbi said that that's why the Gemara the says, Lomo Nivro Adam Yechidi. Why was original man created only one? I mean, why didn't God start the world with a million people? Why did he start it with one? And he said, the rabbi said, I'm greater than your father. I'm a miyuchus. I'm greater than you are. But we're all equal. And that was really uh, Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence uh, mentions that he took that phrase from an old Judaic book that all men are created equal. They're all created equal, which is the basis of somehow achieving peace. Not only are we, uh, because of Dark Shalom, to treat pagans and uh, to extend to them a sense of uh, belonging, so to speak. I used to notice in Muncie when I was around there that on Purim when poor people came to collect money some of them weren't Jewish so people used to complain to me you're letting, uh, you come, you're letting them into the shul I would always quote this Gemara to them, right? <clears throat> right? we're responsible if he comes you have, to, you have to give money you have to give it to him Whoever sticks out his hand, you have to give. So that's the idea of shalom, of harmony, of not to differentiate. So the rabbi stretched it even to Jews who worship paganism, which is worse than pagans who worship paganism. The rabbi said, Great is peace. Look how great peace is. Shafilu Yisrael Oldim Avodah the Jewish people worship Avodah Zorah. But they, they live good with each other, right? Gemara says this regarding the generation of Achav. Gemara asks as follows. WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, around the world on the web, jmnam.org, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Achav, who was the king of Israel, the uh, persecutor of Elio Anovi, who is uh, not ranked very high amongst the righteous. And he uh, worshipped Avodah Zorah. He did everything wrong. But in the time of Achav, for one reason or another, that was a harmonious society. The Gemara says, Shalonimsa dilaturi. Nobody informed about anybody else. Nobody spoke Loshon Hora about anybody else. Achav sent out, I'm looking for Elio, where is Elio? Nobody, nobody volunteered any information. So the Gemara says that when Achav went to war, he was a great warrior king, a successful warrior king. When he went to war, there almost were no casualties amongst his army. But when David HaMelech went to war, so David HaMelech is the great king of Israel, He's the author of Tehillim, he's the head of the Sanhedrin, he's David Melech Yisrael Chai Vekayom, he's the greatest, right? They had tremendous casualties in all the battles. Because, the Gemara says, because in the time of David, they disputed with each other, they said Loshan Hora about each other, they informed against each other. 
God doesn't like that. So, Godel HaSholom, great is peace, that even when pagan, when Jews are pagans, but if somehow there is a society of peace between them, so then somehow the uh, situation will not be lost. It's not disastrous. The Meshachachma, Rameir Simcha Koin, uh, says one of his great insights. He says that uh, the angel said at the Red Sea, Halolo of the Avodazar, Halolo of the Avodazar. They are worshipping Avodazar, the Jews are worshipping the Egyptians. Why you pick on them, why not on the other ones? So, what was the. Uh, what saved the Jews? So he says because they were united, they were together. They had a common purpose. And they felt responsibility one for another. So he says there are just prophetic, frightening words. So he says, Afilu imyu rov Yisrael machalalei Shabbos chas v'sholom. Even if the majority of the Jewish people will desecrate the Sabbath, God forbid. Yove Hashem sloach lohem. God will forgive them if their society is alright if there's a sense of peace within themselves if there's a sense of unity within themselves because that's Godel HaSholom look how great peace is look what it can overcome look how many failings it can overcome if there is that sense so the Rabboni Shalom says, Omer HaMokam Kaviyochal Eini Yecholet Lishlot Bahem Kivan Shasholom Bahem I'm not going to touch them because there's peace between themselves. Godol HaSholom Usnua HaMachlokas the Gemara says. Machlokas, that's the most hated thing. Machlokas is the thing that tears us apart. Tears us apart day in and day out. There are people that look for a machlokas. They look for the trouble. They're always looking on the other one. There are posters every day hung on the street here. Where it says, Snua, God hates it. A lot of the things that happen to us, unfortunately, and I'm not a prophet, I'm not a political commentator, and, uh, you know, I... uh, I don't know anything more than you do, but in my heart I've always felt that a lot of the troubles that we have are simply because of the way we behave. That's just the way it is. We're unable to tolerate each other. We're unable to you know, allow it to let somebody spit in front of me so that somehow that person can be saved. So we don't even let a guy change the lane in front of us when we're driving. They're honking up two blocks away. Because he sees that a guy may want to change the lane. So he honks right away. Sholom, in my uh, humble estimation, would be uh, traffic without the horn. Just let it happen, right? Back off a little. And that's what Chazal said. 
But Chazal also answered that every sholom has to have tochocha with it. Tochocha means not just reproof, it has to have a lesson to it. A peace without a lesson, again, pacifism without purpose, pacifism that is just plain weakness, uh, that destroys us. Kol sholom she'enimo tochocha eno sholom, Chazal said. Every peace that does not have within it a lesson, not have a, something that, that you can take away with it. No, that's not true. That's, that won't last. That's weakness. That's not peace. But Chazal said, but from arguments you never get shown. So it depends. Depends how you tell somebody something, how you try to teach the lesson, what's the language, what's the body language, how do you do it. I, uh, I, uh, I think I mentioned last week that uh, um, I, I knew um, in my youth, I knew a, a, who was a man who was then very elderly, who was a member of the Chofetz Chaim's Kolel in Eishashok. Must have been the 1870s. He was a very old man when I knew him. So he told me once that you know when the Chofetz Chaim had to, uh, you know, if you missed the, for a few days, you didn't come to learn, or he was dissatisfied with. So he would call you in, and he would say, uh, "Not to you." He turned around and like he was talking to the wall, and he says, "I don't know." He says, "You know there." There's a student here that doesn't come. I don't know. Maybe he has problems. He never comes to talk to me. Maybe uh, do you know him? <laughs> he knew him very well. He knew he was talking to him. He said, "Do you know him? Maybe you could. Maybe he would. He could. He could, he could tell me what's bothering him." So they all got the lesson. I had a rabbi, Rabbi Rogoff, Rabbi Rogoff was the kindest, gentlest man in the world. He was such a tzaddik. And we were all American ball players, you know, 14, 15 years old in the class. And, uh, you know, it was a mismatch, like, from the beginning. But we, he loved us, and we loved him, so we never wanted to hurt him. So, but he, he was very nearsighted, so he never wore glasses, and he was very nearsighted. He couldn't see past, uh, no, three feet in front of him. So he would call the roll. In the whole two and a half years that I was in the class, no one was ever absent. <laughs> because they would always answer here, yeah, Rabbi, I'm here no one was ever absent but the worst punishment that we ever had the, for the, how he maintained discipline was that he called you in so he wouldn't talk to you in the room he'd take you in the clothes closet because he didn't want anybody else to see you so it was called the closet treatment right? So, but that ended it you never went back again and so, so he, he, he was the soul of peace and harmony, but nevertheless he was able to control. Just because of the fact that there was the tochocha, and the tochocha was that nobody wanted to make him feel bad, right? Until then we would always have July 4th off as a day from the yeshiva. He didn't know anything about July 4th. So he would have shear, so we all came to shear. Because nobody had the guts to tell him that July Fourth, you know, you're not you're put there from learning Torah on July Fourth. So we all we all came. So when I look back at it, with his kindness, with his gentleness, with his.
peaceful methods, he accomplished more than, than anybody that would have held a whip over us. Nobody from that class ever deserted. Nobody left us. That's Godel HaSholom. We say in Kaddish and at the end of Davning, Ose Sholom Bimroma, God who makes peace in the heavens. What, what do the heavens need peace for? What does that mean? The Gemara itself says, Elyonim she'en lohem lo kino velo sino velo tacharus velo rivos umachlokas. And the angels don't, what are, what are you talking about? And still they need peace? So the Gemara here says uh, an insight, so to speak, into heaven itself. That uh, heaven also has different powers, different layers. It's got to work. Our whole universe is one enormous piece of harmony. Otherwise, one little thing goes wrong and goodbye. Right? Then you, know, you go crashing into the sun. They figured out that the uh, distance of the earth to the sun is exactly perfect, that it shouldn't burn up and it shouldn't freeze. It'd be off one degree either way. There cannot be life on this earth. And the whole universe is like that, perfectly balanced. So that's Ose Sholom Bimromov. God made a harmonious universe. In, and it's harmonious in a place where there is no jealousy. But you'll notice the rabbis always looked for jealousy everywhere. The famous story of the sun and the moon. That the sun and the moon were created equal size. And the moon said, you know, how can we both be the same size? So God said, okay, then you'll be smaller. So the rabbis in that metaphor meant to tell us this lesson. That no matter how great you are, right, there's always room for these bad characteristics that can undermine you. So if Ose Sholem Bimromo of God who makes the perfect harmony in His world, what about our world where there is jealousy and where there is uh, hatred and where there is dispute and where there is all of these differences? Certainly here. Uh, the measure of a person has to be in shalom, in peace, and how a person uh, deals with it. The rabbis asked the question, if shalom is so great, how come the Torah talks about war so many times? Very good question. Not only about war, Jewish wars. There's a Muhammad's mitzvah, a war that you're supposed to fight. There's a Muhammad's rishus, a war that you're allowed to fight. Wars of self-defense, wars of conquest. Yeshua comes into the land of Israel. Moshe makes war with Sichon and Oh. If peace is such a virtue. So in the war itself we have a halacha that poskim b'sholom. You're not allowed to go to war without attempting to make peace first. Without attempting to settle the matter first. With non-violent means. The war is a last resort. But the Gemara says the wars led to peace. Sometimes, that's the Gemara's opinion, sometimes the Milchama is the only method left to achieve peace afterwards. 
the Gemara talks about war against evil, for instance, uh, not to have made war against Hitler, not to have conducted the Cold War against Stalin and the Russians, not to defend ourselves against the Intifadas. That would have all been suicidal. And therefore, the war becomes the instrument for the ultimate peace. The question the Talmud always raises is, what do you do after the war? And in most of human history, after the war has not been a success. The wars have been more of a success than after the war. The Gemara is uh, really astounded that asks, Odom, Sholom, are there people in the world who hate peace? Who hate peace? And the Gemara answers, yes. The Gemara is not naive. Esav, Sonei Sholom. Esav was a man of har That's his business. Well, I mean, West Point goes out of business. Samsir goes out of business if there are no wars. What are you going to do? The, the great worry that occurred in the world economy after the fall of the Soviet Union is what's going to be with the armament industry. So God help that the armament industry is still flourishing. Uh, there was a German general by the name of Bernardi uh, who in 1909 wrote a book in which he said that war is the best thing that can happen. Was the justified the war five years before it began. The book was very widely read in Europe. It had great popularity. And he said it would cleanse Europe. All the dross would be burned off. Uh, the general of the Austrian army, General Conrad, uh, at the beginning of the uh, First World War in August 1914, said what Europe needs is a good short war. So what God gave them was a bad long war. A war that till today affects us. Ninety years later, we still live in the shadow of that great bloodbath. But there were people who said, that's wonderful, right? They justified it. And they went off to war in cheering crowds. But no one saw the 20 million dead ahead of them. No one saw what was the, the fall of the empires. They destroyed themselves. So the Gomorrah recognizes it. The Gomorrah says there are those that are for it. And therefore we have to be careful not to fall into that trap. In this world, even to evil people, machnifin means to uh, not to say the whole truth to them, not to uh, not really to, uh, in a certain extent, to flatter them, because the dark is sholom. Because truth is an overriding value. So we have halochis, for instance, because of Dark Shalom. The halochis is the people make an Eriv, right? Eruve chatseros. We live in a big apartment building, we all want to carry in the lobby. So we make an Eriv between ourselves. How do we make the Eriv? We take a challah, a matzah, whatever it is, we put it in one person's house, we all gather together, and we say, you know, this is our common. Matzah, you can all come and eat it whenever you want, etc. That's the the uh, ritual of making the Erev, etc. So what if the man, it was in this man's apartment for years that he had the Erev in his house. Now new people come and they say, 
we don't want the Erev by him, we want to take the Erev out. And put it by us. But the rabbis say it's not allowed because of Dark Sholem. Because people will say, oh, they took it out because they must know something about him. He's not such a pious Jew, we have to take it away from him. The Gemara says, even you're not allowed to take it away, even if the man dies and his heir wants to keep the Erev in the apartment, so then you have to leave it there too. Because that's Dark Sholem. The halacha is that Cohen gets the first aliyah, right? The halacha also is that the Cohen can give up the right to the first aliyah. He can say, you know, give it to my brother-in-law, he's a Yisrael. But on Shabbos and Yontav, he's not allowed to do that. Because on Shabbos and Yontav, there are a lot of people in shul. And people will say, how come he gave it to his brother-in-law? Why didn't he give it to me? I could use the first aliyah. I also have a brother-in-law. So we may darkly show them we don't allow the Kohen to waive his right to have an aliyah. It's one of the reasons why uh, you should never tell Kohanim to leave the shul in order to play with the aliyahs. It's not his right anymore because darkly show them trumps over his right to assign the aliyah. The Gemara says... Uh, uh, they used to have a canal, an irrigation canal. So who had the right to take the water first? So the Gemara says, well, they did it in the order of closeness to the source of the canal. The Gemara says, why? Because that was Dark Isholem. That's what, what does it mean, Dark Isholem? Then there's nothing to argue about. Because this guy's closer, so he's first. And this guy's next. This, and the order is established. But if there is no established order, right? So then they'll call in the lawyers. Everybody will say, I should be first. So the halacha, because of the principle of Dark Sholom, establishes norms on all in order to lessen the problem of Machlokas uh, and uh, to increase Dark Sholom. The Gemara says we have a rule, the Gemara in Bamatsiya, that uh, anything that's within four amos of me, I'm Kone, belongs to me. So let's say when I walk down the street and there's an item laying in the street and I want to acquire it, so even though I don't pick it up, if it's within my Dalar Amos, the rabbi said it's mine. That's because of Dark Sholom. Because otherwise people will wrestle on the floor. They'll punch themselves. They'll fight about it. So in order to avoid all of this, uh, we have Dark Sholom. And that's really the continuation of what we discussed last week of Jocheo Darche Noam. Jocheo Darche Noam. If you have waste of pleasantness, then v'chol nesivoseho shalom. So then it leads to the path of peace. Then you have an understanding of peace and of harmony. But a generation that is querulous, a generation that is not willing to compromise, that's not willing to push itself to act sometimes even against its own self-interest, but then that generation finds itself far away from Shalom. Shalom is God's name. So in effect, it's a departure from the Lord Himself. Thank you for coming. And uh, next week, the uh, topic will be family.
That's right, and we'll present that lecture bar by Beryl Wine in just moments here at JM in the AM. 24 minutes after 8 o'clock, it's day one of our nine days format. A good chodesh, everybody. It's the Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av on this Monday, July the 8th. I want to wish a mazel tov to Yaakov Moshe Golding and to Asara and Ding and uh, the Waxman and Golding families. We had the uh, amazing privilege of being up in Muncie, New York this past Shabbos for the big bar mitzvah celebration. Yaakov Moshe was phenomenal. And we say mazel tov from all of us here at JM in the AM. All right, Beryl Wine so far today has spoken uh, from his Jewish Values series, Jewish Values, first on pleasantness and then on peace. We're going to get to the uh, lecture on family in just a moment. Uh, Jewish Values and all of the hundreds and thousands of Rabbi Beryl Wine's uh, series uh, available, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Com. We encourage everybody to uh, get information and make her by wines lectures part of your regular listening. They really are amazing. And he, of course, uh, dominates our nine days programming here at JM in the AM. Reminder that Tisha B'Av is a week from tomorrow on Tuesday, the 16th of July. Not only will we present a Kinnis Tisha B'Av morning here at JM in the AM, but in addition... I remind you that there is, for the last 36 years, a special public Tisha B'Av prayer service, Mincha, with Talis and Tefillin at the Isaiah Peace Wall, uh, opposite the United Nations, on 1st Avenue at 43rd Street in Manhattan, 2 p.m. on Tuesday, July 16th. There are many people who are uh, in Manhattan on a weekday especially, uh, for work, etc., when Tisha B'Av uh, falls on a weekday. Uh, try your best to come on down and participate in the Tisha B'Av prayer service. Rabbi Avi Weiss will uh, lead the service. Naftali Moses of Ephrat, Israel, father of Avraham David, who was among the students murdered at Merkaz Harav five years ago, will be the guest speaker. Information 212-663-5784, 212-663-5784. That happens a week from tomorrow on Tisha B'Av Day. Many have asked what we uh, plan on doing regarding my uh, father's historic um, historic Shloshim uh, lecture on the uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe, when the Lubavitcher Rebbe passed away on the 3rd of Tammuz um, uh, many years ago. My father was asked to deliver a Shloshim observance uh, lecture. Uh, that was in memorial of um, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. That was done on the third of Av. So we will follow our tradition on the third of Av this year. Present my father's words about the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which is a uh, internationally recognized presentation, and that'll be about eight o'clock in the morning this coming Wednesday on the third of Av here at JM in the AM. A couple of uh, restaurant notes. I want to thank uh, Ted and A.B. who were here on Friday from Fumio's Grill and Sushi in Livingston, New Jersey. They have a nine-days menu, and as has been their tradition, uh, anybody who mentions JM in the AM during the summer, anybody who mentions JM in the AM in July and August when they dine at Fumio in Livingston, a um, donation is going to be made to JM in the AM. 
So I'm asking everybody who goes there to please note that and participate in that very special program to support our program. And I got an email this morning from listener Elise who wanted everybody to know that now in West Hampton Beach there's a kosher establishment under the supervision of the Hampton Synagogue. Shock Ice Cream and Dessert Cafe. And she claims that it's the only uh, kosher establishment, um, uh, the only kosher cafe in the entire Hamptons. So you can check that out in West Hampton Beach. And I thank her for the public service notice so that our listeners will be aware of uh, what to eat when they're out there vacationing. 29 minutes after 8 o'clock, it's JM and the AM on this Rosh Chodesh morning. Our nine days format, isolated thunderstorms with a high of 87. Yerushalayim is at 86 up at Guilford, New York. Our friends at Camp Misora have 67 degrees. We're at 74 here in Jersey City. Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture from the Jewish Values series entitled Family. Family is a very difficult uh, topic to discuss because it's uh, sensitive, emotional, and uh, everybody has their own stories to tell about it. But family as a value uh, is the, one of really the basic pillars of Judaism. The Rabboni Shalom said to us, Rak eschem yodati mikol mishpachoso adamah. Your family do I know from all of the families which exist in the world. And uh, Judaism, which is a faith, uh, Jews are a nation, Jews are a race, Jews are a religion, but Jews are a family. And we see ourselves as being a family. And the family has uh, ups and downs. But a family has a bond uh, that is able to span all generations. And really that indicates more than anything else what the Jewish people are. If we were not a family, for instance, we would not have been able to accomplish the ingathering of the exiles which has taken place here in the land of Israel over the last 60 years. Uh, people from all parts of the world, uh, different cultures, different experiences, different colors, uh, different traditions. But because it's family, it's family. I uh, always uh, think of uh, the famous story with Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, in New York. Uh, the Soloveitchiks are well known for their family affiliation uh, no matter uh, what or who you are. If you're related to them, so then, uh, then they'll go through anything for you. So uh, he was uh, in his uh, heyday as a uh, as a rosh yeshiva. He was saying the shir in yeshivas Rabbeinu Yitzchok in New York, and uh, he was a terror. I mean, he uh, the, the students uh, he brooked uh, no uh, comments and uh, silly questions, and you know. You sat there in awe, and uh, once he was teaching, uh, and he explained a matter, uh, a difficult matter in the Talmud, and the student had the temerity to raise his hand and say, Rebbe, Rebbe Aaron doesn't say like that. 
So Rabbi Soloveitchik assumed that Rabaran meant Rabaran Cutler, the uh, the other major Rosh Yeshiva in America, the founder of the Lakewood Yeshiva, the Kletzka Rosh Yeshiva. So he waved them off, you know, he kept on going. But the student persisted. Then after another minute, he raised his hand and he said, Rebbe, but Rabaran doesn't say like that. So now Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, fixed him with an atomic look. And he said, uh, who cares what Rabaran says, right? We're, uh, and he kept on going. The student does it for a third time. He raises his hand and he says, Rabaran, Rebbe, Rabaran does not say like that. So now Rabbi Soloveitchik is, you know, the steam is coming out from his ears. And uh, he says, I don't care what Rabbi Cutler says. And the student said, no, not Rabbi Aaron Cutler, your brother Rabbi Aaron. He said, oh, get up and say what he says, please. <laughs> the Torah saw the Jewish people as a family. And therefore, family became a value. And the preservation of family is one could say the primary value in Jewish life. When God chooses Avraham Avinu to be the father of our people, and the one that brings monotheism to the world, to other civilizations as well, so God does not list his piety, nor does God list his intelligence, nor does he even list the sacrifice and the risk of life that Avram Avinu undertook in order to promote monotheism, that he went into the furnace of fire, or the ten nisionos that he had. None of that is listed. The Rabbanu Sholem says, Why did I choose Avraham? Ki yodativ l'man asher yitzaveh He will be able to build a family. He'll be able to inculcate it in his children and in generations that come afterwards that they will go in the path of God and they'll continue in his mission. So it makes Avram, and we call him Avram Avinu, Avram our father. We don't call him by any other name. We call him our father. So what makes Avram Avram is family. And therefore, the Chumash Breshis deals only with the story of family. Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef, the brothers. So the family there also has ups and downs. Has misunderstandings and disputes. But at the end of the Parsha, at the end of the Chumash, at the end of the story, the Jewish people are a family. And that became our hallmark. And the Torah says, You're not allowed to close your eyes to your relatives, to your family. And therefore, Jews are bound together by a bond of blood, not only by a bond of faith. Now that's a very, very important thing because it colors our entire attitude. It enables us 
you know, somehow to be able to uh, rise above all of the problems that we have and all the differences that we have. And we're a very fractious people, we have always been. And we were able to rise above all of that because, you know, it's my brother. So let's hear what he has to say. In our time, in our generation, over the last 35 years, especially in Western civilization, in the United States, in Europe, and here in Israel as well, unfortunately, the family has been under siege. The traditional concepts, marriage, children, family, two parents in a home, all of that has been uh, decimated. I want to read for you a uh, portion of an article that appeared in the New York Times. Uh, I think it was either last Saturday or Sunday. Uh, the article was written by a man by the name of David Brooks. And he uh, imagines that he meets Karl Marx today. And Karl Marx tells him that his old manifesto and what he said about the working class and about the uh, capitalism, etc., uh, he admits that all of that is wrong, right? That's been disproved. But he has a new manifesto. And the new manifesto, uh, he uh, writes about it, what Marx would say today. And here is one uh, point that he makes uh, that's really significant and significant, I think, to our conversation here this evening. He said, more than the Roman emperors, more than the industrial robber barons, the male factors of the educated class seek not only to dominate the working class, but to decimate it. For 30 years they have presided over failing schools, without fundamentally attempting to transform them. They have imposed a public morality that affords them maximum sexual opportunity, but guarantees maximum domestic chaos and ruin for those who are lower down the ladder. In 1960, there were not big structural differences in the United States between rich and poor families. In 1960, more than 75% of poor couples were headed by a married couple. Now, less than a third are. While the rates of single parenting have barely changed for the educated elite, the family structure has disintegrated for those lower down the oppressed masses. Poor children are likely to live with, are less likely to live with both biological parents, hence less likely to graduate from school, less likely to get a job, less likely to be in a position to challenge the hegemony of the privileged class. Family inequality produces income inequality from generation to generation. It generates crime, violence, and eventually the destruction of society. Well said, Carl. 
Because that's what happened. So that you have entire generations that grow up without family, without a sense of family. And without that sense, uh, the child is automatically disenfranchised, sees the world through skewed eyes, is at a disadvantage. And the Torah came to emphasize the importance of family. And therefore, amongst Jews, which were always, we were persecuted, uh, 99% of all Jews in the exile were poor. It's not like it is today. This is the most affluent generation in Jewish history. Absolutely the most affluent generation. And we take it for granted that it's supposed to be that way. Uh, but it was not that way. It was not that way uh, as late as uh, 45 years ago. It was not that way. But even in the poorest of families, there was a structure. There was a family. Somebody was home for you. Somebody cared about you. And therefore, the people could be successful. But if there is no family structure, and if it's all ad hoc, so then uh, we live in a time of great difficulties. And we see it here in our country as well, the crime rate. Every day you hear another murder, uh, two murders, three murders. This was a country that never had a murder. When they built the first uh, prison in Tel Aviv in the 1920s, so the prison stood empty for three years. They didn't have any customers. And then one day in Tel Aviv, the police finally caught a ganiv, they caught a thief. So Bialik wrote a poem in honor of the occasion, because he said, now at least we're a normal people. So I said, ah, we're plenty normal. Because the breakdown of family eventually leads to the breakdown of society. It gives rise to all of the ills that we are aware of. So it says in the Torah... We will have it uh, shortly in the Chumash Bamidbar. Uh, Moshe heard that the people uh, wept. The families wept. So the Gemara says, what does it mean, It should say, The families wept. What's Two To the Indian, to the... Uh, idea of, regarding the idea of family. So the Gemara says, Al iske mishpachosov. They wept because of the fact that now that they had the Torah, the Torah emphasized family. It limited them. It limited them sexually. It limited them in social values. It kept them at home. It gave them a different sense of responsibility. They wanted to have the freedom. They wanted to be of a generation that does whatever it wants to do. Everything goes. And therefore, that's why they wept. They wept over the fact that family means responsibility. And that without family responsibility, not only did Jewish people have no future, individual Jews have no future, 
and society general generally has no future. The rabbis emphasized family to such an extent that they said uh, wild things, uh, at least on the surface. The Belezer says, Bitcha Bogra, you have a daughter that's old enough to get married, and you can't find the suitable Shidduch. Shachver Avdecha, you have a slave, free the slave and marry him off to her. Now, what's that? That is the emphasis on family. And the emphasis on family is such that for the sake of family, as we'll see in a few moments here, I hope, we'll see that the rabbis advocated great compromises, personal compromises, for the sake of family. And uh, in our world uh, where uh, matchmaking has gone wild, where it's uh, almost, uh, it would almost be uh, humorous if it weren't so tragic, uh, the Torah looked at it differently. And that's what Rabbi Eliezer said. Family is an overriding value. It even overrides uh, the search for the perfect mate. Because uh, basically, uh, except for rabbis, they're hard to find. And uh, so all of life is compromised. Family is compromised. Marriage is compromised. But if the value of family is primary, if that's the priority in life, and the priority in Jewish life, so then it overrides uh, many times uh, personal wants and ideas. So we're going to have two sides to the question, uh, which the Gemara discusses and does not ever come to a conclusion. One side of the discussion is not to bring into one's family people that are not proper. They will disrupt the family. So the Gemara teaches us, for instance, There's a family that one of the sons marries a woman who is not proper for him. Now, Eino Hogeneslo, in its uh, Talmudic sense, in the sense of halacha, means that she was forbidden to him. It's a relationship which the halacha forbids. But in its broadest sense, it means it's just not fitting. It's not right. It doesn't belong in that family. So the Gemara says... Boyin bnei mishpocha, it was the custom in the time of the Talmud. The other members of the family came, umevin chovis mleo peros, and they brought a barrel, a bushel full of fruit, vishovrinosa beemsa rechova, and in the mid, they would put it down in the middle of the street. Everybody would then be looking and they would break the barrel or break the bushel open so that the fruit would roll on the street. 
And people would say, Mazer, what, what is that about? The Omrim, and they would say, Achenu b'nei Yisrael, our brothers, the children of Israel. Shimu, listen to us. Achinu Ploni, our brother, so and so. And they said his name. Noso Isho Sheino Geneslo has married a woman that's improper. As, therefore, he has damaged our family. And he's damaged the society as well. And we want you to know about it. And we see in the Gomorrah, we'll see in a minute that the Gomorrah is in favor of uh, public acknowledgement that it was a mistake, rather than to cover it up. Because by covering it up, there's an acquiescence to it. I have this que- I've had this question so many times in, uh, in my rabbinic career, it's tragic, but it's the question that exists, and certainly in the American rabbinate. Right? This, he's an Orthodox Jew, you got a cousin, and the cousin is going to marry a non-Jew. And his aunt, uh, who is his beloved aunt, and who went to every birthday party, and, uh, you know, and they always had, his aunt insists that he should come to the wedding. They should go, because what can we do? We have to make her closer, we have to bring her, you know. And, and, uh, shall he go? So my answer was always a resounding no. They can do what they want, but you don't have to be part of it. And so then I would get a call from the aunt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I always ended up the villain. But this Gemara shows us uh, that, uh, you know, that if we have to break the bushel in the street and say it's not proper, it's not proper. There has to remain some standard of what a family is. And if everything goes as it does in today's world, there is no standard. So then, my, so then what's the noise about? How, how can you uh, begin even to attack the problem of intermarriage if you accept it as a fact and you accept it as uh, something that uh, in many instances is even overlooked? I even had a worse scenario... But that was when I was younger, so I was, uh, you know, when you're younger, you know a lot. As, as you get older, you know less and less. So I was really uh, young then, I think it was the first or second year that I was in the Rabonis. And someone came to me that uh, uh, their relatives uh, were having a bar mitzvah, and the bar mitzvah was going to be celebrated in a non-Orthodox congregation. And what should we do? So uh, I told them not to go. So they said, how can we not go? It's our relative, it's a close relative and everything. And we won't go to Davin there. And uh, yeah. so I said, yeah, I said, I'm not telling you what to do. You asked me what, uh, you know, my opinion. That's my opinion. And what happened is that they didn't go. And because they didn't go, it made such an impression on the other relatives that eventually the other relatives became Orthodox. Now, I can't guarantee that that's going to happen. <laughs> but this is an absolute true story. 
And it's all based on this Gomorrah, right? Without the Gomorrah, I would hesitate to say anything. Because how do I know? But the Gomorrah says that for the preservation of the standards of family, it should be dealt with strongly. It should not be covered over. And even though it's an embarrassment, you know, imagine, you know, you go break a barrel of fruit in the middle of the street and you make such an announcement, you know... Not nice. But, we are looking for an overriding value here. And the overriding value is the preservation of Jewish family and Jewish home. And improper marriages, halachically improper marriages, are not the way to secure family or to secure Jewish survival. And Chazal therefore said, Oilo Woe to someone who through his behavior uh, makes his generations pasul, really meaning that he hurts their pedigree. And and the entire family suffers thereby. We have a great Gemara that says, the Gemara asks, the, the Gemara was discussing uh, uh, the fact that uh, the Romans executed robbers, uh, smugglers, uh, people that did things illegally. And uh, so the Gemara asked, well, you know, the robber, the smuggler, he's got a coming to him. But why should the rest of the family suffer thereby? In other words, in God's system of justice, when the criminal is punished, so uh, let the criminal be punished. I mean, why does the mother have to suffer? You know, we see always that the, the, the son is a murderer, and the mother says he's a good boy. Because that's a mother. So why should it be that the family should suffer as well? The Gemara says a frightening thing. The Gemara says, says every family that has criminals in the family cover up for them. They cover up. So it's very hard to uh, you know to go against your own flesh and blood and it's very hard to look realistically at your own flesh and blood and so what if he's a smuggler? But the Gemara says that since they cover up for him, so therefore they undermine the whole sense of rectitude that exists within the Jewish people, and therefore they are also part of the punishment. So we have here almost a collective guilt, not just the guilt of the criminal, of the person alone, but the guilt of everyone around, because we tolerate it. Uh, we could say that about our society here also. We tolerate a lot of things that we know are wrong, that we're embarrassed about. But uh, who wants to get mixed up? Who wants to say anything? But though we who tolerate it are also tarred by that brush. You know, we are also damaged by it. You know, we are, so to speak, part of the corruption also. And the Gemara is very, 
very strong in this area. Makes very, very few allowances. Because of the fact that, again, this is the overriding value That's one side of the coin. Right? So one side of the coin is uncompromising, right? Now, you have the other side of the coin uh, to protect my family. The Gemara says a case in the Dorim that a man comes before the Bezdin and he said, I, uh, I uh, pledge to become a Nozir to take the vows of Naziru to be, uh, uh, you know, to uh, not to shave for 30 days and not to drink wine and to be celibate and to stay away from all troubles. I take all of that upon myself on the condition that I will not reveal what I know about my family. I won't reveal what's wrong with my family. Now, the rule is that we go to all lengths to prevent people from becoming a Nazir. The Gemara says that uh, Shimon Atzadik, the great Kohen Godel, uh, never participated in the uh, sacrifice of a Nazir because he said, uh, isn't it not enough what the Torah forbade for you? You've got to make it more yet, right? The, the Torah said that... Uh, you know, uh, you can drink wine and you don't want to drink wine. The Torah said that you can you know, take a haircut and be uh, presentable and you want to be on camp. The Torah. Therefore, he would not participate. Except there was one case. One case, he said, where he felt that the man was truly a Nazir and he took upon himself the vows of Nazirus in order to prevent himself from sinning. We will um, we will actually play in its entirety the uh, lecture on family uh, early tomorrow morning here at JMN with the conclusion in the uh, six o'clock hour uh, maybe just after seven a.m. Uh, tomorrow morning here at JMN. Information about Rabbi Barrel Wine's lectures one eight hundred four nine nine W E I N RabbiWine.com. brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listen to sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, Rockland County at ninety one point nine on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, JMN.org. Wrap things up for a Monday, first of our nine days. A good Chodesh, everybody. Keep in mind that today is Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. All the traditional additions for Rosh Chodesh. Tomorrow morning we're back as our nine days format continues here at JM in the AM. Till the Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember to past, live the present, and trust the future.